Um, without further ado, I want to bring up uh, Christopher Shannon. Go ahead and make your way up here and make some noise. Show some love to Christopher Shannon before we get to our last round of poetry. Uh, actually, I'm just going to go right into it now. To this terrible, beautiful world. Awaken together. I awaken. I awaken to the sounds of birds singing and children laughing. Sunlight. You're listening breeze. to The Obvious Question. I'm your host, Wait, Maddie Lawson. And I'm Becky Smith. And today we're talking rare, rare conditions. Yeah, that's the same thing. You know, same thing. Well, Maddie, you actually recently found out that you're even rarer? Is that rarer. the word? More rare? That sounds I like prefer, I'm talking about a steak. I prefer I'm a different breed of unicorn. Ooh. Um, now you have like iridescent holographic hair. Mm-hmm. I like this. Maybe wings make you a pegasus now too. Yeah, and I'm covered in rhinestones. So. <laughs> So in this episode, we're going to be talking to Chris Shannon, a guy that we met here in town who actually has a very rare diagnosis himself, a different one. But, uh, but we're kind of cousins. You are. We're, we're kind of hear cousins. About this. Yeah. I'm excited. But so throughout this entire episode, we're going to hear uh, excerpts from a poem that Chris actually performed a few months ago at One Mic, which is a local poetry, uh, monthly poetry event here in Columbia, Missouri. So we're going to hear parts of that poem throughout the piece kind of intermingled, but but most of the time, we're going to hear from Chris and yourself, Maddie. So are you ready to dive into rare conditions? Light as ready as I'll ever be. Let's go. Shines through if you let it. A faint and distant light. So gene studies have been a big part of my life ever since I was a kid. Um, you know, whenever I first got my diagnosis, um, I was only four years old and I had been doing other studies, you know, leading up to that when they were trying to figure out what was wrong with me and why, um, why I was very weak and why I wasn't healing throughout my surgeries the way that I was supposed to. And um, anytime you get any kind of diagnosis, they do four rounds of tests. So there's a physical examination, there is a nerve conduction test, um, a gene study, and blood work. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, for my physical examination, my nerve conduction, and my gene study, they all showed, um, like the gene study showed that I had um, mutated genes. Mm -hmm. It didn't identify which ones they were, so they kind of identified me as like a weird type of the disease that my nerve conduction test and my physical examination um, presented. Yeah. Um, So they said, we believe that you have spinal muscular atrophy, some a form of it and my whole life after that that's what they were treating me for um but since I was a rare form of it um every single time I would go in they always wanted blood work they always wanted to do um muscle biopsies they always wanted to do all these different tests what was that like it was you know as a kid I didn't really know what was going on I didn't know exactly what they needed but I was always just told like you know, if you do this, you are helping another kid. And so it always was kind of like a, you know, do this for the other kids. And so I always just did it. And I always just went along with it because I kind of felt that, like, responsibility, you know, 
um, to be helpful to other people and, you know, be brave, do this for, so one day other kids won't have to deal with this. And um, so I always just did it, didn't really think anything of it. Um, but as I got older, I would remember the last time I had done that and not hearing anything back from it. And, you know, when you're a kid, especially growing up doing like the Muscular Dystrophy Association, like telethon and all that stuff, like it's all very hopeful and um, which sounds like a good thing. And I don't think that necessarily being hopeful is a bad thing, but I also think that it can be extremely harmful um, if you do give a child false hope about their future, especially when you don't really know what that entails. Um, so I believed for a while, I was like, you know, if I raise enough money, if I do enough, like raising awareness, like, you know, I kind of felt this like social responsibility to do it because of the way that they were like, you know, if you do this, maybe one day kids won't have to do this. And, um, I didn't really know what I was doing at the time. And I didn't have the ability to really comprehend what was going on enough that it like like just looking back on it I just kind of feel a little bit used in a way and a little bit like taken advantage of from like a kid um you know I really thought that I was going to maybe be cured and although that's not really I I now looking at everything like I know that's not in the cards for me more than likely um at the time it was just kind of like, even though no one ever told me, like, you know, you're going to walk, it was like a re-loss of something that I had never gained. And, um, you know, that was just getting hope and having it, having it kind of falsely presented to you and then having it taken away is like losing the ability to walk all over again because it's like that part of yourself that wanted to fight for a reason now feels like you did that fighting for no reason. You know, when I got older, like recently this year, um, they found out what my condition actually is. Um, and it is not what they originally thought. So like, you know, all the fundraisers, all the work that I did, all the community that I had found myself in just felt like it was for nothing. And mm. um, so my actual condition is called Ulrich congenital muscular dystrophy. Um, UCMD. UCMD. The University of Central Maryland. Yeah. <laughs> the home of the baby birds because that's my strength level. Um, I just felt a lot of things and I, I couldn't quite – I'm still processing a lot. Well, because um, this was just a couple months ago. This was in February, yes. So it's been it's been kind of a roller coaster. Um, you know, some things are – like a little bit worse than what we originally thought um and but more than anything like it gave a lot more I guess peace of mind because now like things that were just weird about me and my mm -hmm. diagnosis before um make a lot more sense and like my progression makes a lot more sense you know my pulmonary function which is like my lung function is extremely low and you know my contractures are really tight my arms and legs don't straighten all the way. And that happened very rapidly when I got in the wheelchair. And, um, you know, they always were like, oh, you need to stretch more, you need to do this. So I always thought it was something I was doing wrong. And this is like when you were 10. 
mm-hmm. right? You were in a wheelchair at 10. Mm-hmm. Well, I was in a wheelchair at 9. At 9. And they were like, you know, do you want to not be able to push your own wheelchair? Do you want to, like, not be able to do these things? And um, it was just very, like, you need to be doing more of this. You need to be stretching more. You need to be doing all these things. But, like... And they were saying this to a nine-year-old. A nine-year-old. Like, what nine-year-old wants this to happen to them? Oh, I, I know. I know the future in this world can seem bleak sometimes. Believe me, I know. Seemingly so much hatred in this world, so much misunderstanding and delusion and suffering and pain. Pain. Pain may have been my, no, pain may be my constant companion since the day I was born. Same can be said of joy, of love. You have a condition that is incredibly rare. Like, that is a challenge that to live a life where you can love and connect and be, uh, yeah, just appreciative and joyful and loving yourself and another, that takes a lot because that is an extra barrier, at least for me, because even my closest friends, it can be really hard to be like, you just can't relate. No, I get that. I, I totally relate. Sometimes, like, the way that I felt about my, like, diagnosis, um, when I first got the new diagnosis, it was devastating because I had grown up, you know, with this identity for this other condition. And this other condition is, like, one in 6,000. Mm. Now you're, what, like, one in a billion? Literally, yeah. So it's just, it went from, you know, I had a community. Mm-hmm. I had people that looked like me. I had all these people. And so I did get that. Like, I grew up with that. And that was something that really helped me and really, you know, shaped me into the person that I am because I saw other people that looked like me succeeding and that kept right. me going. And I didn't even know that, you know, I wasn't really like them. Um, it made a lot more sense when I got the true diagnosis because I've just been declining really bad. And, um, you know, I, I shouldn't have been declining this bad with the other condition. And so I thought, like, you know, is this my fault? Like, is something wrong? Like, and am I not doing enough? Like, what mm-hmm. what do I do? Um, but I'm progressing the way that I should have been. And actually, um, we found out that my life expectancy, I've already outlived it. Oh, wow. So speaking of disabilities, um, would you mind walking me through your particular diagnosis? Yeah. So... Um the basic or the groundwork for all of it is I was born with a incredibly rare recessive uh, genetic condition. Recessive as in no one else in my family has it. My parents just happen to be carriers. Um, and I, even though my brother is not, I just happen to get uh, both copies. Um, it's called um, recessive dystrophic epidermolysis pilosa. So about one in a million people have it. Um, essentially, it, it means that my body cannot produce one of the, fun, the protein strands for collagen 7, which collagen 7 is what makes our, our skin um, and some of the mucous membranes like strong, stretchy, elastic, resilient. My body can't make one of the fundamental proteins for it. So the collagen 7 is weak, um, and therefore my skin breaks at the level of the dermis and epidermis with like 
intense, fr- you know, intense friction or trauma or various other things, uh, mostly just like trauma. And so, I'll, so my skin like tears or I get a, a blister. And some areas of my skin aren't that fragile. Some are. It really depends on like how much trauma has happened there before in my life. And um, essentially that led to, um, it's kind of like getting a second degree burn when it gets really, really bad, like the really bad ones, most aren't. Um, And so that's like affected my entire body. Um, And due to that, I was going to have inevitably scarring, mostly just because of like mild blistering through my fingers. Um, and pretty much everyone with this disease has it. Um, and that like creates webbing in the fingers. So the doctors always said like, I just have to have surgery one day to like reduce that so that I could still use my hands. And at about three or four surgeries later, my hands were foobarred, uh, and just, uh, never recovered, never played the piano again. I managed to retain enough, um, dexterity to because they like cut tendons they just butchered them they put nails through the fingers it's ridiculous um doctors now like looking back can't believe what the surgeon chose to do but that was how they used to do things and so essentially my the scarring in my hands just contracted my fists hands into fists so i essentially just uh, yeah i have it's like i have no use of any fingers or anything like that it's just like i have fists um, but it also, yeah, it just leads to a lot of other complications like skin cancers and things like that. Um, so it's kind of one of those like vast reaching illnesses that I'm sure you know what that's like. Um, yeah, I, yeah. mine is actually a collagen six mutation. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. interesting. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't know that, that yours is yeah. collagen seven. Yeah. Connective tissue disorders. Yeah. 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 One number away. Oh my right. God. Right. Oh my gosh. We're <laughs> basically related. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're almost the same type of mutant. Right, exactly. Yeah. Mutated masterpieces. <laughs> there you go. I like to refer to it. Hey, you're listening to The Obvious Question, and I'm your co-host, Becky Smith. So KBIA has some other podcasts you should check out as well, including Show Me the State, hosted by Christopher Husted. This podcast takes a look at myths and lore from Missouri history and figures out how that's still impacting the state today. We also have the True False podcast, which is an in-depth look at documentary film. You can find this and all of our podcasts at kbia.org or wherever you get your podcasts today. Um, so you said that you've done a lot of different, like, experimental um, things. Can you talk a little bit about that, what all that has, like, entailed for you? Yeah, so um, a lot of that started really just in the past few years other than Prior to that, I'd give samples, you know, blood or skin samples because, like, well, if there's some researcher doing experiments that could one day lead to treatments or a cure, of course. Um, And I was always told since I was, like, six years old that there was going to be a cure. Um, And then, like, I, when I realized that wasn't the case, I went into a severe depression for the first time in my life as an adolescent. So I gave that, I, I let go of that. Essentially, like, this is me. And then a few years ago, um, the research has been progressing. And so there's been a lot of research into the genetics. Um, and Stanford is uh, has kind of one of the leading forefronts in the world at that. And due to a connection that I had with my personal specialist here, who's amazing, um, 
I kind of I found out about those. I'm like, part of me was like, this is what I've always been waiting for. You think it's possible that there could be a treatment that could benefit me? Um, I gave lots of samples, and they try. Eventually, had some surgeries where they did that. Um, unfortunately, it, it didn't work. Um, like there was um, potential. But it, it was it like an, it was also for a really sad reason, or in my mind, it's like bullshit reason. <laughs> um, it wasn't because the treatment didn't have potential. It's just like I got an infection. I almost never get infections. Most people, my condition gets lots of them. I don't. Uh, good immune system. I don't know. But of course, I have a surgery. They keep me in the hospital for a week or more to watch. And somewhere along the way, I got an infection. Um, so that was uh, honestly devastating because even though I went in like I'm not doing this just for me like there's no guarantees here but the point is I'm only the fifth human subject ever to do this um, and it's moving the science forward so that maybe I in the future or at least other people in the future but still at first it was very much of like wow this could dramatically improve my quality of life like every day I could be in less pain every day and so when it failed, that was devastating to me. Uh, broke my heart because I actually let myself get my hopes up. Um, but since that time, it's still like, well, it doesn't matter that it failed because some of it worked. And the point is to move the science forward. Like, that's what I keep reminding myself of, of when I'm like so frustrating, like surgeries, uh, multiple rounds of these injections, all these treatments, like it, it's it's going to move the science forward and hopefully maybe it'll benefit me maybe it'll improve my quality of life a little bit maybe not but gee man i hope one of those kids that is younger than me who's been being told there's gonna be a cure maybe it'll actually be a cure that's interesting um i kind of relate to that with um this whole idea of being cured yeah um people People just kind of give you this false hope when you're a kid where, like, you are broken and you are fallible and flawed. And they nail this idea of the reason why you're broken is because of your disability. And then I had that realization, you know, like, my body has been severely shapen by this condition. And I have had a full spinal fusion. I've had... My hips have been dislocated and put back in place, and I have arthritis, and um, I have contractures throughout my body and things that, you know, that's never going to be undone. And you can't – I know for a fact, even if they found a cure for my condition tomorrow, I'm never going to walk. And that's just something that, like, for a while I was, like, sad. I was, like – I was angry because I was, like, you know, I really thought if I, like, worked really hard – if we raise enough money, if we do this, like, I'll be fixed. But I've never been broken. Like, Mm -hmm. and that's that's the false information about disability that is painted in society every day. And I think that, like, that whole idea of it needs to be reshaped and understood. Like, look at people with disabilities as, like, capable people. And... That is what's broken, not us. It's it's emotionally, like, draining, I think, to, you know, grow up with these ideas that, like, I'm going to be fixed. You know, I'm 
things are going to get better. Like, oh, that's that's hope, right? Yeah, hope's great and hope, tragic. Hope's the worst. I hate it because it means that you're relying on something in the future that's out of your control for your happiness exactly. instead of relying on the here and now for being happy. Yeah, I think for me, um, it's kind of lonely. Yeah. Okay. I th- yeah. I think it's a lonely thing. Um, I think, although I I didn't feel alone for a really long time, and I don't feel alone um, in most things. But when it comes to the way that I feel on a day to day basis, I think it is kind of lonely sometimes. Um, I think on those days where I'm in a lot of pain or mm. I'm not able to do something that I can do on other days. Um, even the thought of explaining it to somebody gives me stress and I can't because yeah. I just like don't want to take someone to my dark place. I yeah. don't want anyone else to experience that. But at the same time, I, I feel like I can understand other people because of that loneliness yeah. and because of that isolation that I've felt through it sometimes, um, it's easy for me to find relatability to people yep. because I know what it's like to be completely alone. I totally un- like viscerally know that, understand that feeling. Also, one of the most powerful things I, I have experienced is like when I found a few, like a lot of friends, and a lot of good friends, but like found those friends that for whatever reason I was able to trust. Um, and feel like receive the love and acceptance that maybe others had too. I just, to then get to the point of like, actually, here's my life. Here's like, we travel together or we live together. And it's like, they see, right? Like, or I tell them like how, what I'm struggling with. And then to be like accepted for like the good and the bad and the ugly. Yeah, I think sometimes like I feel very much like I'm burdening my loved ones yeah, because of the amount of bigness that I require from people. I require big love. I require patience. Mm-hmm. I require all these different things. Um, and patience is a big one for me. Like, you know, sometimes when people get upset about something in a situation, I will take it very personally and feel like it's my fault but recognizing that you know they don't they haven't developed with patients that I've had to because their body doesn't make them do that like they can just yeah you know things can be convenient for them and quick for them and they don't get it and I think just accepting that and like you know recognizing and accepting that like you know they're not doing it because they feel bad for you they love you and you're capable of love you're just as they get the same thing out of you that you get from them. And that's something that like for me, for it took a long time to like accept. Um, but now that I have that, like I, I don't look back and I like, I love myself better because of that. You know, I grew up with this idea that, you know, I'm broken and need to be fixed um, based on the way that society painted disability for me. Mm-hmm. But as I've gotten older, I've realized that it's not me that's broken. It's the world. Mm. The world isn't made with me in mind. 
and so now instead of trying to fix myself, I strive to like fix the world because that's yeah. what's really going to make the biggest difference in improving people's quality of life. You know, I'm not going to sit around waiting for a hypothetical cure that might not even benefit me or like, you know, maybe it will help kids in the future. That would be great. But like until then, I'm paving the way for people right now because right. we still matter. Yeah, you got to live in the here and now. That was so hard for me with that. Um, when you said the world's broken, uh, one thought I had recently um, was like, I have a disability and, and this, and I'm kind of giving up hope that maybe there's going to be a cure anytime in my life. But what also I see is there's a disability, a sickness around conversation, around belonging, around acceptance, around, you know, what's beautiful, what's this, or you know, like... All these things. Um, and like it's kind of sad to see a disability and a sickness around a conversation, around respecting others. Um, and that doesn't really have, like, there doesn't have to be. Like, there's not, like, you can't change DNA, you know, without breakthroughs in science. You can fucking change a conversation. Snaps to that. Yes. I feel that. Yes. Um, I totally agree. I think people just need to stop thinking about it as, like, your life isn't good if it doesn't look a certain way. Yes. Like, your life can be just as good, if not better, than other people just from the perspective that you gain through your experiences. And I think that's what people need to recognize is, like, there's so much beauty in perspective and so much beauty in unique experiences. And, um... Yeah, we are more the, certain and more ones. determined than ever. And I, I may not know where this life will lead, but I know how I will lead it and what I choose to follow. To learn to help myself and others. To accept the pain and this spiraling change to live, no, to love more fully and live more fully present so that, so that I know, no, so that we can learn to help others do the same. No A special thanks to the whole Obvious Question team. Our producer on this episode was Alex Dudson. Our supervising producers and dramatic pains in my ass are Becky Smith and Aaron Hay. Our managing editor is Ryan Familner. Our social and online genius is Nathan Lawrence, also known as King of the Sweater Vest. This has been The Obvious Question. I'm Maddie Lawson. And I'm Becky Smith. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. That, my friends, that, I think, at least, is maybe how the world awakens. <laughs>